Welcome to the Squadcast Podcast. I'm David, aka the Pod Fanatic, host of To Be a Rebel. Squadcast is a cloud recording studio that empowers creators to record audio and video in studio quality with anyone, anywhere, and at any time. You can learn more about Squadcast and start a free trial at squadcast.fm. On the Squadcast Podcast, you'll hear discussions about the podcast and creator industries. You'll hear updates from the Squadcast team. You'll get podcast recommendations, creator tips, and so much more. The Squadcast team also loves to show off the creators who use Squadcast to record their shows. So from time to time, you'll hear feed drops from other podcasts. Today is one of those episodes. In just a moment, you'll hear an episode of my podcast, To Be a Rebel. On the episode I've selected from the John Brown series, you'll gain a glimpse into his early life and what led him to become a rebel. From humble Calvinist roots in Connecticut to the Western Reserve of Ohio, and then back to the Northeast again, setting out on his own at the ripe age of 16. By following John and his story, we'll uncover what it means to be a rebel. Okay, let's get to this episode of To Be a Rebel. It's the night of May 24th, 1856. John Brown has just set out alongside a wagon, carrying seven other men he's recruited, including five of his own sons. The night sky is full of stars, but John is not in a good mood. Over the last three days, abolitionists like him have been dealt a decisive blow, beginning with the sack of Lawrence on the 21st and culminating with the beating of Senator Charles Sumner on the 22nd. These events have embroiled John and set him on the warpath. In his own words, these men are all talk. What is needed is action. Action! These men originally did not intend to go on the offensive. They were planning to run to the battlefront at Lawrence to fortify and defend the city in the aftermath of the attack just three days earlier. But as they arrive, they realize their presence is no longer needed. They take a different route of exacting revenge on some of those responsible for the attack. John Brown did not get to this point overnight though. His life, full of adventure, began on a Friday, May 9th, 1800. This is the story of John Brown, and you're listening to To Be a Rebel. This is To Be a Rebel, the podcast that takes you through the lives of real rebels throughout history that have defied unjust authority and stood up for themselves and their beliefs, at times costing them their lives or their reputations, and sometimes both. This is part one of a three-part series on John Brown, the abolitionist icon that orchestrated the Potawatomi Massacre and led the raid on Harper's Ferry. This episode will focus on his early life and what led him to these infamous events. John Brown grew up in an unusual family. They were Calvinists, Christians that believed in the sovereignty of God and the authority of the Bible over man. They also believed the Bible made it clear that slavery is a sin and thus that abolitionism superseded any man-made laws permitting it. This was not a widely accepted view for his time, 
and often made him an outcast. There are many other Northerners who believe slavery to be wrong, but did not take it to the same extent that John did. John truly believed black folks to be equal to him and wanted to be around them, whereas the mainstream white view at the time was to be separate but equal, a term later coined during the famous Supreme Court case of Brown versus Board. The apple didn't fall far from the tree in the Brown family. Some of Brown's own sons would even fight alongside him in the battles that took place. Now imagine for a moment, your own children following your cause so closely that they agree to take up arms and die for it just as you would. Now in the same regard, John gained many of his anti-slavery beliefs from his father as well. Owen Brown, John's father, grew up in Torrington, Connecticut, a hodgepodge of religious revitalization at the time. In the years leading up to John's birth in 1800, many preachers began giving public sermons and no one stopped to listen to one in particular. Imagine it's the late 1790s in New England, and preachers are taking to the streets to give public sermons. This has been a regular thing for the area, something known as the revitalization movement. But there's one in particular that seems to strike a chord with everyone there. He began by proclaiming the sovereignty of God and the Bible over man. But then he begins denouncing slavery as a wretched sin that needs to be stopped. He goes on to encourage those listening to do whatever they can to bring it to an end. Take up the Bible and heed its message, ye holy men and women. God urges us to avoid sin and repent. His sovereignty supersedes man's law. Many of our nation have been led astray, particularly in the South. Slavery, the owning of another human being, is wrong just as God tells us in his good book. We must do all we can to end this cruel, unjust sin. It is our God-forsaken duty to do so. Owen then begins reflecting on this message. Well, by God, he is right. God has chosen me to do my part in ending slavery. I shall endeavor to do whatever I can to contribute to its demise. He is convinced that God had ordained him personally to take up this endeavor. Though he himself would not live to see the end of it, his son John would set the dominoes in place for its ultimate downfall. John was born in the year 1800. Originally growing up in Connecticut, the family later moved to Ohio in the Western Reserve, a place of vast wilderness also known for its many anti-slavery citizenry. It's the year 1812, and a war has just broken out with Britain and Spain, known as the War of 1812. John's father is a tanner and cattle herder, and the army is in dire need of supplies, so he sends John out to make deliveries for him. During a 100-mile trek away from home, he would come across a U.S. Marshall family that he stayed with for a short while. This family had a 12-year-old black boy as a servant whom they treated terribly. John described the boy's clothing as nothing but tattered rags. He said that the family verbally abused him often and even beat him with an iron shovel. John saw this boy, who was the same ripe age of 12 as him, as, quote, fully if not more than his equal, end quote. This would be a transformative event for him, which led him to, quote, swear eternal war on slavery, end quote. But there would be even more fuel added to the fire as he grew into adulthood and experienced bleeding Kansas for himself. John set out on his own at the ripe age of 16. 
Before he leaves, he says his goodbyes to his family. Well, Pop, it's time for me to strike it out on my own. I feel ready for it. I'm going to set out for the Northeast again. Maybe I'll be back. Maybe not. I love y'all. You and Mom both. And Owen responds in kind. Well, we love you too, son. Best of luck. And don't forget, you're always welcome back here. Hope to see you again before too long. John would ultimately go on to have 20 children in total, seven with his first wife, Dianthe, and 13 with Mary, whom he married a couple years after Dianthe passed away at the age of 31. Loss became a familiar theme for John, having lost his mother at a young age, and not only his first wife, but nine of his children during his lifetime. Just four would ultimately outlive him. One of the first events to fan the flames for John Brown was the killing of Elijah Lovejoy. He grew up in the Northeast, but later moved to Missouri, wanting a career change from teaching. Upon arriving in St. Louis, he began publishing a newspaper called the St. Louis Observer, which was critical of slavery, as well as those who supported its institution. There were several threats made against him, and pressure came from the editors as well. Unfortunately, his printing press was destroyed on three separate occasions while there by angry pro-slavery mobs. Ultimately, he would move across the Mississippi River to Alton, Illinois, but his troubles did not escape him. It's November 7th, 1837 in Alton, Illinois, just a hop, skip, and a jump from St. Louis over the Mississippi River. Elijah has just finished printing a day's edition of the Alton Observer, his new abolitionist and Presbyterian paper that he publishes. Suddenly, he hears a crowd gathering outside and they sound angry. He goes to take a look and sees that they are indeed armed. He calls for help from his other staff as they begin setting fire to the warehouse. They quickly begin procuring arms, but it's too late. They attempt to bring the press outside to save it, but Elijah is shot as he approaches the door to exit and falls over dead. One of Elijah's helpers manages to get a shot off and kill one of the mob members, but then they begin storming in. As the warehouse deteriorates and the inferno rages, they manage to throw the press out of a window and into the Mississippi River below, marking the fourth press of his to be destroyed. In the aftermath, local abolitionists as well as northerners are enraged over the display of violence by these pro-slavery barbarians. This event would continue to increase the tension between pro-slavery and anti-slavery factions in the years to come, spilling over into what would become known as Bleeding Kansas. In the early 1850s, the U.S. began expanding west, and Kansas and Nebraska took center stage as the debate over slavery intensified. Ultimately, the Kansas-Nebraska Act was passed in May 1854 due to several clashes between the two factions. It's November 1854. Polls are just beginning to open for elections in Kansas. Poll workers are tabulating ballots and preparing new ones. At one of the stations, a violent and armed mob storms the doors and demands to be given ballots, but the poll workers know the rules and refuse to budge. A couple of men from the mob begin approaching them with guns in hand, asking them if they're sure they want to go this route. One of the workers, not wanting to lose his life, walks back to retrieve a ballot, but another intervenes explaining that this is a serious matter and they cannot allow them to cast a ballot illegally. One of the men then shoots this worker, 
and as he falls to the floor, the other continues retrieving ballots for them all, and they begin filling them out. As they begin to exit, the worker feels his stomach nodding, knowing that this was probably not the only station to be ransacked, and indeed, he would prove to be correct. Two years later, in 1856, two more events take place in rapid succession that send John Brown on the warpath and ready to take action. It's May 21st in Lawrence, Kansas. A mob of over 800 pro-slavery men have gathered from Kansas and Missouri to destroy the town of Lawrence after a judge demanded that the local government be indicted for treason for their publishing of anti-slavery literature and organizing of weapons and munitions. The town decided against putting up a fight, but this did not satisfy the mob. They began setting buildings ablaze and fixed cannons upon the Free State Hotel. By the end of it, the whole town would be up in flames. Luckily, just one person died in the aftermath, but the destruction was innumerable. This would come to be known as the Sack of Lawrence. Just one day later, another violent attack would come upon the anti-slavery movement. It's May 22nd, 1856. On the Senate floor of Congress, Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner begins his speech by addressing the president on recent matters in Kansas. As he gets to the last paragraph, he is interrupted at the end by Representative Preston Brooks, whom he criticized. The contest, which beginning in Kansas, has reached us, will soon be transferred to a broader stage, where every citizen will be not only spectator, but actor. And to their judgment, I confidently appeal. To the people, now on the eve of exercising the electoral franchise and choosing a chief magistrate of the republic, I appeal to vindicate the electoral franchise in Kansas. Let the ballot box of the union with multitudinous might protect the ballot box in that territory. Let the voters everywhere, while rejoicing in their own rights, help to guard the equal rights of distant fellow citizens. That the shrines of popular institutions now desecrated may be sanctified anew. That the ballot box now plundered may be restored. And that the cry, I am an American citizen, may not be sent forth in vain against outrage of every kind. In just regard for free labor in that territory, which it is sought to blast by unwelcome association with slave labor, in Christian sympathy with the slave, whom it is proposed to task and to sell there, in stern condemnation of the crime which has been consummated on that beautiful soil, in rescue of fellow citizens now subjugated to a tyrannical usurpation, in dutiful respect for the early fathers whose aspirations are now ignorably thwarted, in the name of the Constitution which has been outraged, of the laws trampled down, of justice banished, of humanity degraded, of peace destroyed, of freedom crushed to earth, and in the name of the Heavenly Father, whose service is perfect freedom, I make this last appeal. Suddenly, after Sumner finishes his speech, Preston Brooks approaches him and begins beating him with a cane. Although Senator Sumner would go on to recover, he nearly died from the caning and the event would further polarize the nation. This would be the final straw for John. Although the news of Sumner's speech would not reach the rest of the nation until a week later, John set out to take action for the events in Lawrence. He no longer saw words as being effective in the battle to end slavery. Action would now be the only hope. He began gathering a militia to plan a counterattack on the perpetrators of Lawrence. 
Seven other men would agree to join, including five of his own sons. They set out on wagon just three days later, on the night of May 24th, under a starlit sky. Thanks for listening to To Be a Rebel. This has been part one in our three-part series on John Brown, the famous abolitionist icon that orchestrated the Pottawatomie Massacre and led the raid on Harper's Ferry. Today we covered his early life and what led him to these infamous events. Next week, we'll dive deeper into these events and the actions that made John Brown so infamous. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you told your friends and family about it and gave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on all our new episodes covering all of history's rebels. Have an idea for a rebel you'd like to see covered? Email me, david at echofox.media to have it considered. A quick note on dramatizations. We can't always know exactly what was said, but these depictions are based on historical research. Hosting and production is done by me, David Lose. Editing and sound design by Brianna Reese. Historical research for this episode was done by Dr. Paul Burrow. Links to all of our sources used and resources for further reading can be found in the show notes. We'll see you next week. And until then, take care.